Hello, I am Oliver Turtle, and welcome to an exploration of musical outsiders. <laughs> Outsiders, outside of what, you may well ask. Well, in compiling a series of profiles on the figures I found intriguing, innovators, visionaries, occultists, dissidents, exiles, and a glum Scotsman, there was one term which seemed to bracket their unique perspectives altogether, the outsider. It proved a problematic and revealing lens to observe these artists through, while many of them started on the inside and then drifted out into the unknown, there were also those who were not outsiders by choice, barred from social acceptance. We are presently listening to Joe Meek's first stage demo of Telstar, the first home-recorded world number one, ooing and ahhing over the first backtrack he could find, waking up in the middle of the night with the haunting refrain echoing through the canyons of his dreams. Despite earning the title The Alchemist of Pop for his studio innovations, Meek was known to be tone loose, as evidenced by his grasping for the key in this sketch. inspiration and excitement palpable in that home recording. He very much started on the inside working at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop developing experimental sounds, but he soon rode out alone, turning the music industry inside out in the process. In addition to his renowned studio ingenuities, making a world-famous recording studio out of the bathrooms and cupboards of his Holloway Road apartment, Meek had a series of other enthusiasms distinguishing him from the mainstream, with interests in mysticism and obsession with Buddy Holly, whose death he apparently foresaw during a seance, prompting him to try and alert the singer to his fate, and a keen interest shared with his songwriter Jeff Goddard in The Skymen Lurking Among the Stars. Prior to Telstar, in 1960, Meek produced a couple of EPs titled I Hear a New World, an out-of-space music fantasy, in which Meek, quote, wanted to create a picture of what could be up there in outer space, expressing excitement in the sleeve notes at the auditory possibilities of the coming space age. The track titles include references to beings with which he populates the moon, including the entry of the Globots, 
The Love Dance of the Sarus, and The Dripcot's Space Boat, of which he writes, This looks rather like an egg, and it floats a hundred yards from the surface of the ground, it glides along at about 20 miles per hour, and is built and owned by the Dripcots. The reason for this is that if a passing satellite of opposite polarity came by, it would whisk the spaceboat, Dripcots and all, away and perhaps into orbit around some other heavenly body. Although partly written in jest, these are the words of a man who once stayed up all night in a graveyard in order to surreptitiously record a talking cat. I and his blue men there, of whom apparently there were many. And I hear a new world. Although fascinating, it's difficult not to view Meek's interest with the other through the perspective of his problems with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and the immense pressures of being gay at a time when it was still illegal. Apparently he always ventured out of the house wearing dark glasses, in fear of the Cray twins and the possibility they may blackmail him, an atmosphere of paranoia which culminated in the murder of his landlady and suicide in 1967. Joe Meek's long-held conversations with Buddy Holly may seem impressive, but they're quite low-key in comparison with a certain Mrs. Rosemary Brown, a pianist and spirit medium who counted Liszt Schubert, 
Chopin, Beethoven and Brahms among her telepathic collaborators. She maintained that these musicians used her as a means to publish their music beyond the grave. She also claimed not to have had a formal musical education, acting as something of a puppet for these composers, or sometimes just rendering the score straight to paper. Here she is talking through the personalities of her auric acquaintances. Well, there are now a number of composers all trying to work with me, and amongst them, of course, is Beethoven, who's a very wonderful person to work with. Uh, he's always very gentle when he works with me. He doesn't seem to be at all disagreeable as he was supposed to be when he was here. And there's Brahms, who is always very peaceful, with a, but with a great strength. You know. um, Schubert, who is the most delightful person, you know, I think uh, everybody would love him because he is so modest and, and good-humoured. You know. Following some years serving in a post office, Rosemary Brown was working as a dinner lady in a school in Balham, South London, heading into the 60s. She did manage to find some benefactors to support her supernatural transcriptions. This is a piece titled Gribbeli, or Meditation, by a composer she claimed to have met as a young child, Franz Liszt. Rubelai, or Meditation, by Franz Liszt, or Rosemary Brown, or both of them, depending on your inclination. Rosemary Brown attracted quite some attention and scepticism, of course, getting into the 60s and beyond. Um, some asked if she was in contact with Schubert, why didn't he complete his unfinished symphony through her? Well, he volunteered the information that he has finished the unfinished symphony since his passing, and I wonder whether he would like to transmit it to us in this world. And he told me that he had decided to leave it as it was. He felt it left it as a mystery and that in a way it was more romantic as an unfinished symphony. 
she did gain quite a few high-profile admirers, including Leonard Bernstein, who she entertained on one occasion. She also had something of a side hustle as a psychic artist, producing works on behalf of Van Gogh, William Blake and Turner, amongst others. These otherworldly musical inclinations are not as rare as one might imagine, whether that be the choral music of Hildegard von Bingen, born from ecstatic visions in 10th century Germany, or the cosmic compositions of Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who cited his birthplace as a planet orbiting the star Sirius. A musician who hailed closer to Earth was a Le Sonnier Ra, or Sun Ra, who was on a musical mission for the considerably nearer planet of Saturn, recording hundreds of albums across doo-wop and jazz with his revolving cast of musicians, which he described as his orchestra, living in communes and composing music around the clock. According to his biographer, John Zved, as a college student in around 1936, he had an experience where he was teleported to Saturn, with beings with an antenna behind each ear, who advised him to quit college and express himself through music. His passport was stamped Saturn, birth date eradicated, and his stage shows include numerous props of flying saucers and ancient Egypt come space-age regalia. This is his Tapestry from an Asteroid, recorded in 1960, a perfect symbol of his vision of intergalactic civilizations across time.
Sun Ra and his orchestra sounding like the house band of a Saturn cocktail bar there, with antennae patrons no doubt sipping on their mercury martinis. While Sun Ra may have had Saturn stamped into his passport, that other celestial nomad, Ziggy Stardust, had much humbler origins, it is thought. Many have suggested looking no further than Isleworth in Middlesex for Bowie's main inspiration and the tale of Vince Taylor. As a teenager, he ended up at Hollywood High School after his sister had married Barbara of cartoon moguls Hanna-Barbera. On a business trip to London with his brother-in-law, he met Tony Meehan and Tex Makin in a Soho coffee bar and formed the band Vince Taylor and the Playboys, adopting the pseudonym of Vince after consulting the back of a Pall Mall cigarette packet, crafting a caricature Elvis styling, being dressed entirely in leather, including gloves, pomaded quiff, generous eyeliner, and a Joan of Arc medallion, a token of the Playboy's popularity in Europe. A narcotic lifestyle and growing megalomania led to quite a change in image. By the mid-60s, Taylor was donning white robes and professing himself to be Jesus Christ at his performances. A young and impressionable David Bowie tagged along with this remarkable figure, who carried maps with him wherever he went, producing them to indicate the locations where UFOs were scheduled to land as part of the master plan involving himself as the extraterrestrial messiah. He had also acquired, earlier on in life, some skill as an aviation engineer, and after retiring from public life, it is thought that he was struggling with schizophrenia, he saw out his days working happily as a mechanic in Lausanne, Switzerland. No wonder then that Vince Taylor and the Playboy's odes to vehicular icons proved to be their greatest successes. This is the somewhat mysterious Jet Black Machine. I presume it's a car, but who knows? I got a machine that's hot, and it's just raring to go. That queen, I sent her on my black machine. Take her where she's never been. Jeez, oh, so cold in that jet black machine. Jet black machine. Elevate next, elevate that jet black Come on, Bob. Lady, wait, I never thought she'd even wait for that jet black machine. 
That was the Leather Enveloped, Vince Taylor with his Playboys and Jet Black Machine. Whereas Vince Taylor was clearly enthralled to the stories he weaved, sometimes it is difficult to distinguish the outsider from the theatrical poseur. One such figure was screaming Lord Such, whose camp, slightly tongue-in-cheek posturing as a psychedelic vampire and, of course, founder of the official monster-raving Looney Party, was executed with such conviction it became difficult to discern fact from fiction. While Vince Taylor was greedily ransacking the wardrobe of Elvis Presley, a young Lord Such found a like-minded screamer in Screaming, Jay Hawkins, and his juju stick Henry. Although friends have claimed that he acquired the nickname from a habit of hollering as he traversed the carriages of the underground wearing a top hat as a young man, but his stage antics were clearly taken from the macabre extravaganza of Screaming Jay Hawkins, including coffin entrances, which of course became stuck on occasion, campy stabbings of his fellow musicians, and the throwing of butcher's cuttings into the audience, all while keeping up the pretense of being a window cleaner to his beloved mother. He did certainly add an English flavour to his act, frequently riffing on Jack the Ripper, for example, but he is probably more well known as the face of the official monster-raving loony party, which he actually invested £10,000 in and ran for 41 elections under the banner of Vote for Insanity, You Know It Makes Sense, with fellow candidates looking more and more pained each year with their attempts at faked amusement. A parody executed with such conviction that it became an establishment in itself. Many of his recordings were produced by the aforementioned, similarly macabre, Joe Meek, including this love story to a monster in black tights. My monster in black tights You've got the kind of blood that I like I remember the day you dragged me away And left me on a barbed wire fence My monster in black tights You've got the kind of eye that I like With your wrinkled up chin where the worms have been You make me wanna hold you tight Oh, I love to see you hopping along What else can you do with three legs? No, it may seem ever so wrong I like you best when you're in your best My monster in black tights You're everything a freak like Won't run away I untie your chains today Oh, I love to see you hopping along I've got three legs too No, it may seem ever so long I like you better 
when you're in your best My monster airplane tights You're everything a freak like I like And if you say you won't run away I'll untie your chains today And I'll feed you there And I'll take your cage away The gross flattery of screaming Lord Such there, with help from Joe Meek and his monster in black tights. Lord Such also had a sad death, being close to his mother Nancy all his life, who defended his exploits as one big act. Her death in 1997 amplified his problems with manic depression, leading to his suicide two years later. Curiously, and perhaps typical of Lord Such, the last artefact which he left was an appearance in an advert for Cocoa Pops. The outsider is often the explorer of new cultural territory, forging a path for future tribes to follow in their wake. Long before Kerouac set out on the road, Lord Buckley had constructed his Crackerbox Palace in the realm of the Beat Poetical, Bob Dylan labelling him as the hipster bebop preacher. As with Lord Such, Buckley was self-ennobled, beginning with humble origins in the lumber trade of California, working as a treetopper, ascending to the peaks of grand trees and securing ropes for their fell. A high fatality risk employ, which arguably cleared a path for his unfettered what-the-hell style. He started on the cabaret circuit, sometimes performing for up to 12 hours with holding acts, developing a persona which combined elements of colonial Raj aristocrat with African-American hip semantics, donning a full white suit and piff helmet and Dali moustache. Tipped off by a friend about a circus going bankrupt nearby, he managed to get hold of an elephant's purple cape, which became part of his stage show. He gained a fan in Al Capone, who legend has it set him up in his own Chicago club, Shea Buckley, in exchange for the Lord setting fire to his girlfriend's mink coat. He would book Cab Calloway and Louis Armstrong in his club, of whom he would borrow from for his act. Many of his pieces argued for civil rights, and he would address everyone he met as Lord or Lady, contending that everyone should treat each other as sovereigns. He was known to receive guests at his chatterbox palace with his wife, either completely nude or in tails. And his main wig bubble, or idea, was, as he addressed his audience, would it embarrass you very much if I told you that I love you? A very different take to the Medugal Street misanthropics of the later beats. Here he is describing a meeting with a like-minded cat he calls the Dean. forget the first time I dug the great swinger James Dean. 
Conti Condoli and I were splitting a gig marquee style at a jumping joint in Hollywood called Jazz City. A lot of professional cats used to fall in the place. Benjamin Alexander, real great Catherine Dragnet, Sweet Peggy Lee, Stan Kenton, amongst the others, made the scene. I was pushing a new song in Yuma that all had big eyes and ears to pick up on as the lick consisted of translating Poe, Shakespeare, Einstein, Mahatma Gandhi, and some of the miracles of the life of Christ into the semantics of a modern language called the hip, which I, after much research, found to have a full vocabulary, and one that was a seven-ply gasser if a cat really wanted to blow. Now, the night was cool and crazy. Not too many cats digging this field, but the ones who were there were real tight to the attention. I'd just finished blowing three miracles from the life of Christ in hip, when the waitress sounded me that James Dean was on the scene and had invited me to his table. I think he was in the middle of the rebel. Now, the Vaughn's grapevine had been swinging for quite some time about what a great cat he was and how strong and cool he was coming on. I swung over to the booth just by the jukebox where five young, quick-looking cats and two chicks were playing the cool. A big cat with glasses and motorcycle shoulders stood up and made the introduction. We all sat down. But with the blowing crash of the jazz, I couldn't dig the names. So I was not hip to which one of the group was the star, so I played it cool and cased him, looking for that Hollywood type of spells, Cinerama head, but none of them made that category. This young, handsome cat with the glasses, hot rod jacket, no tie, and a one-day bid, I finally dug was the Dean. And I said to myself, let me dig this solid cat and see what jumps in that wig of his that's causing all the flip on the vine. He asked me if I'd been digging Shakespeare for a long time to pick up on this lick. I said, yes. He then said he'd like to blow a little Shakespeare straight someday, and I said, that would be a guesser. He continued by telling me that he appreciated my underlying sincerity and humility in the translation of the life of our Savior, and added that he had my recording of the miracles, said it was one of his favorites. I thanked him for his kindness. He went on to say that this was solid as the young cats and kitties of our country could use all the spiritual help they could get. He said that the young cats, it seemed to him, were looking for some kind of a cop-out in the face of the bad jazz of the atomic age that too many of them were taking the attitude, so what, we may all flip out at any moment, might not have a ball before the blast. He went on to say that in his opinion, the cats and chicks of the atomic age were by far the brightest, strongest, and most intelligent of all the generations. He felt that the message of Christ brought to them in their own language of the hip should do a lot to swing them over to the power of love. I said I thought it was very profound of him to dig the scene that way. He went on to say that he was making some long speeches tonight, and he hoped he wasn't staying on stage too long. I said, Blow, man, I consider it a privilege to listen to you. And that time, I excused myself and returned to the stage, immediately dedicating my next effort to him. An incident in the life of Mahatma Gandhi translated in hip 
called the All-Solid Mahatma. I blew that and four more pieces for him and returned to the table. He thanked me for the dedication and said that he dug Gandhi the most. He then informed me that in his humble opinion, in some respects, the Mahatma was like the return of the man to the people, that he, like Christ, had put forth all his efforts for the betterment of his people. I said it was a solid thought and beautiful too. He returned by saying there were few people one could discuss things of this nature with and remain cool about it. The young cat next to him, who was introduced to me as his manager, sounded him on the fact that he had an early call and the time to cut was now. Jimmy rose at once. He apologized for having to split so early, but that we'd chat again as he would return soon. I never saw James Dean again, but I'll never forget him. That was Lord Buckley's account of a meeting with James Dean, recorded in 1956, a year after James Dean's death. Ten years later, Lord Buckley would be referenced in Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, with the Jingle Jangle Morning being taken from Lord Buckley's Scrooge story. And here's a clip from Jack Kerouac's Poetry from the Beat Generation, an album recorded with the pianist Steve Allen just four years later in 1959, and yet it has a completely different tone. The goofy, foolish human parade passing on Sunday art streets of Greenwich Village. Pitiful drawings of, an, of images on an iron fence ranged there by self-believing artists with no hair and black berets showing green seas eating at rock and pleiades of time pestiferating at moon squid salt flat tip fly toe tat sand traps with cigar smoking interests puffing at the stroll. There's a sliver from the Madougal Street Blues performed by Jack Kerouac there, typical of the more existential and ironical direction that the beat generation took, who were collectively all assuming the outsider posture. Whereas the pioneering synthesis of Lord Buckley's style found appreciation years before the beats became established, there are of course those many whose foresight is not acknowledged until it's too late. Connie Converse was such a figure, considered to be something of a polymath as a young person, and in the early 1950s turned down an academic career to move to New York and try her hand at being a writer. She taught herself guitar swiftly on arriving and wrote songs which innovatively combined poetically complex lyrics with jazz, bluegrass and classical harmony to produce music which would be marketed the next decade as singer-songwriter. She was something of a reluctant performer, described by one person who saw her playing with friends at a salon as having long loose clothes, no makeup, hair tied back in a bun, and an arrogant air as though, quote, she had just come in from milking the cows, 
She stunned with her following performance, and a connection at the party set her up on Walter Cronkite's CBS Morning Show in 1954. Here, she appears a nervous figure with a distant gaze, and unfortunately it led to no palpable opportunities, her sound being so out of context. In a letter to her brother, she shares that she found it hard to make herself known, and she left New York to pursue an academic career in Michigan, close to her brother. However, exhausted, she suffered a breakdown, and in 1974, she mailed a series of cryptic notes and drove away, never to be seen again, leaving her music collection to friends and confidants on homemade tapes, which have only recently been issued to acclaim. Her biographer Howard Fishman notes how phrases like as though she'd come from outer space and she had one foot in another world recur in interviews with family and friends. This is one of the songs from her tape collection. It's called Two Tall Mountains. In between two tall mountains there's a place they call lonesome. Don't see why they call it lonesome I'm never lonesome when I go there See that bird sitting on my windowsill Well he's saying whippoorwill all the night through See that brook running by my kitchen door couldn't talk no more if it was you up that tree that sort of a squirrel thing sounds just like we did when we were quarreling in the yard I keep a pig or two they drop in for dinner like you used to do I don't stand in the need of company with everything I see talking like you up that tree, that sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling You may think you left me all alone But I can hear you talk without a telephone I don't stand in the need of company With everything I see talking like you See that bird setting on my windowsill saying whippoorwill all the night through just whippoorwill all the night through in between two tall mountains there's a place they call lonesome don't see why they call it lonesome I'm Well, the tape cuts off before she answers that question. That was Connie Converse performing Talking Like You to Tall Mountains in the mid-1950s with a very small group of people that you can hear in the room with her there, some of whom probably put together the compilation of her songs on Squirrel Thing Records. Eden Arbez is next.
all lowercase, as apparently only God and infinity merited the capital, and he is perhaps the quintessential outsider, found residing under the first L of the Hollywood sign during the eight weeks one of his songs held number one in the charts, camping out plein air on the peak of Western civilization. He was born into something of a nomadic experience, being adopted from the Brooklyn Hebrew Orphan Asylum by a family in Kansas at the age of nine. Learning the piano, his first gig was playing in the Utropian health food store run by alternative lifestyle pioneers John and Vera Richter in LA. He was very much at the nascence of hippie culture, with long red hair, a waifish figure, and a faraway gaze, taking up the natural travelling lifestyle from the German van der Vogel movement of walking troops from the turn of the century, which inspired a lot of the hippie tropes later on. In 1947, Eden Arbis claimed to hear a tune in the mist of the California mountains. He then approached Nat King Cole's manager with the music, which, when released, saw Arbez staring from the front cover of Life magazine, also pictured alongside the dinner-suited Nat King Cole in sandals and a whole foot shorter. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far, over land and sea. A little shy and sad of I, but very wise was he. And then one day, One magic day he passed my way And though we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing you ever learn Is just to love and be loved in return. That was Eden Arbev's singing Nature Boy a cappella there. He also recorded an album of beachcombing exotica titled Eden's Island, outlining his mysticism, but henceforth seemed content to wander out of the spotlight. While Abe was preaching vegetarianism to his nature boys, the name of his disciples, a Viking stood at the intersection of 54th Street and 6th Avenue in New York, who proved no less influential. Also hailing from Kansas, Moondog, so-called after a dog howling at night which he felt a kinship with, was shaped by early memories of being allowed to play a drum during a sundance at an Indian reservation, and then, at the age of 16, a dynamite accident which left him blinded. Having studied music, he performed on the streets of New York largely out of choice, incorporating the sounds of the city into his work. During his busking, he acquired admirers as diverse as Igor Stravinsky, Charlie Parker and Janis Joplin. 
He was lauded for his innovative use of rhythm, which became known as snake time, and synthesized Native American and European styles. He also developed a number of his own triangular instruments, including a percussion box, which he called a trimba, a harp called the oo, and a bowed string instrument called a hus, Norwegian for house. He donned the Viking horns after being irked by people informing him that he resembled Christ with his robe and beard, though he did ultimately move to Munster in Germany, perhaps having grown into his Moondog persona. Unsurprisingly, that is Frog Bog by Moondog with his Snake Time Rhythm, 1956. And continuing on our trail of single-minded proto-stylists, next up we have a guitarist, Pete Townsend of The Who, described as the innovator, John Fahey, a musicologist obsessed with the blues and dark American folktales, He wrote his master's thesis on the mythic bluesman Charles Patton, and his first album, in 1959, Blind Joe Death, introduced a style which he described as American primitive guitar, merging blues and classical counterpoints in a manner which is reminiscent of the shoegaze guitar bands of the 1990s. Side one of the album he attributed to Blind Joe Death, described as an obscure blues guitarist, and then side two was under his own name of John Fahey. 
He only pressed 100 copies of the record, doing so himself, using money which he earned working at his local Maryland gas station. The sleeve notes elaborate that Blind Joe Deaf had a guitar made from a baby's coffin and had taught Fahey all he knew. Fahey would sometimes come out on to perform as Blind Joe Deaf, wearing dark glasses and being led out onto the stage. He explained that this alter ego was a symbol of all the suffering of the blues musicians he so admired. He found himself in penury and ill health in later life and had to pawn all of his guitars, trawling through flea markets for rare records to sell on. If you search his name and the word blues, hundreds of compositions will come up, and one of them is the Sligo River Blues, referring to a river in Western Ireland, beloved of Yeats, which ever flows out onto the Atlantic towards the Americas. American primitive guitar style of John Fahey and his ever-churning Sligo River Blues. As alluded to by John Fahey, African-American blues musicians were often marketed with the prefix blind before their names, and blind Washington Phillips, as he is sometimes described by historians, seems to have had perfect vision and never professed any differently. Like Moondog, Phillips was well known for making his own instruments to express his sonic imaginings. In his case, one special instrument, called a manzarine, as reported by an article at the time, a box two by three feet and six inches deep, in which he had strung violin strings in the manner of an auto-harp. 
born in 1880 in Texas, he would spend his whole life in the state farming 30 acres of land and was what was known as a jackleg preacher, spontaneously offering exegesis wherever a crowd was present. Phillips had his own anti-sectarian view of Christianity, which he expressed in his 17-verse anti-denomination blues, which caught some attention along with his shimmering manzarine instrument, and he earned a makeshift recording session with Columbia, where the engineer noted that he would reassemble his instrument for each session. He died after falling down a flight of stairs at the welfare office in Teague, Texas, and is buried in the Cotton Gin Cemetery. The personal directness of his gospel music has seen it persist beyond its original context. What are they doing in heaven today? I don't know, boy, but it's my business to stay here and sing about it. What are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away. Peace is bound like the river, they say. What are they doing right now? I'm thinking of friends whom I used to know. Who lived and suffered in this world below But they're gone up to heaven But I want to know What are they doing then now? Oh, what are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away Peace is bound like the river, they say, but what are they doing there now? There's some whose body was both full of disease. There's dozens and doctors couldn't give them much ease, but the suffering of death brought a final relief. But what are they doing there now? Oh, what are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away. Peace is bound like the river, they say. But what are they doing right now? There's some who are poor and often despised. They look up to heaven with tear-blinded eyes. While people was heedless and deaf to their cry, but what are they doing right now? What are they doing in heaven today? While sin and sorrow are all done away, peace bound like the river they say. What are they doing right now? That is Washington Phillips in Texas performing his What Are They Doing in Heaven Today in 1928. That song was actually written by Charles Albert Tindley, a very influential Methodist minister and composer. As well as writing that song in 1901, he also composed Stand By Me, which of course was adapted 
much later on. And also, he wrote the basis for We Shall Overcome. He actually started out as a janitor in his church, educating himself all the way up to being one of the leading ministers in the country. Now, while Phillips was trying to infiltrate all denominations, a Mr. Bunker Hill struggled to keep on good terms with one. Dave Walker, as he was born in DC, had an 18 to 5 record as a heavyweight boxer. And then something seemed to change. At the age of 18, he turned to gospel music and translated this high octane vigor into a group called The Mighty Clouds of Joy in 1959. His charismatic performances were picked up by Link Ray, the rumble guitarist, who invited Dave to record some singles in his influential home studio. Dave assumed the pseudonym of Bunker Hill, a reference to the American Revolutionary Battle, such was his explosivity, so as to hide this secular pop dalliance from his gospel group. However, someone whose voice resembled Little Richard, Screaming Jay Hawkins and Kirk Cobain singing at the same time was difficult to keep low-key in 1962. His hide-and-go-seek was banned by some stations for its suggestive content, later appearing as a favourite of Motormouth Mabel in John Waters' Hairspray. The Mighty Clouds of Joy were well aware of Bunker Hill's exploits, and he was soon exiled from the band. After the novelty of his outbursts wore off after a few singles, the gospel group did eventually allow him to rejoin, before he drifted off again in the late 60s to an unknown fate, perhaps experiencing a conflict between the excitement of his pop exploits and his spiritual endeavours. This is The Girl Can't Dance, featuring Link Ray on guitar. Thank you. 
That is the one-man supernova of Bunker Hill, with Link Ray and his Rayman just about keeping up with him there. Link Ray, of course, well known for Rumble, five years earlier, in 1958, a song which actually was banned from New York radio in fears that it would start riots. And one of the main reasons that Link Ray recorded guitar instrumentals rather than vocals is that he only had one lung, having to have one removed after serving in the Korean War and contracting tuberculosis. So finding Bunker Hill, who sounds to me as though he has at least five lungs going at the same time, must have been quite an outlet. Link Ray himself was the son of Shawnee Native American parents in North Carolina, a hard itinerant life of which he reflected, Elvis grew up white man poor, I was growing up Shawnee poor. It is sadly rare for a Native American musician to achieve prominence in the USA, though our next focus could prove another example. Just possibly. There is an Arizonan dust cloud of uncertainty around that, whirling with conflicting accounts, even a name proving problematic. She is most widely known as Chio. What is certain is that she was boldly one of the few prominent female guitarists in the early 1960s, and certainly in surf music, guitar playing being a notoriously macho sport during that period. Although there is the story of Kathy Marshall, known as the Queen of the Surf Guitar in Southern California, who apparently upstaged Dick Dale of Miserlou fame, aged just 13. Alas, no recordings of Kathy were made, but many photographs taken, further revealing the prevailing attitudes of the time. The traditional footnotes describe that Chio studied music at the University of Nebraska in the 40s, after which she married a Japanese engineer working at a naval air station in Oxnard, California, his name being Fred Ishii and that she then expanded home music lessons into her own business, at the turn of the 60s, opening a shop called Chio's Guitars and Drums, where she would hold court, specialising in flamenco guitar. Shortly after which, she formed the band Chio and the Crescents, which was mostly made up of teenagers half her age. Now comes the mystery. It was widely thought that Chio was of Hopi, Indian descent, with her full name being Chisamana, which means bird maiden. A Google search of her full name conjures an article from the Los Angeles Times in 1971, titled Tradition in Yarn, where it describes a Hopi village leader and snake chief in Arizona encouraging his niece Chisamana Ishii to produce yarn-embroidered hangings, portraying kachinas, supernatural beings who visited Hopi land each new year for rituals. These were produced to promote awareness around Hopi culture in, quote, the outside world. It then states that Chisamana was then a research associate with the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History, where these works were being exhibited. The twist comes at the end of the article where it describes her surname Ishii as deriving from her father's clan, not from the supposed husband, Fred Ishii. Further obfuscation arises when looking at the YouTube videos of her music, the comments sections of which are populated by several conflicting claims about her story. 
Carolus Eulenhurst, six years ago, provides a clue. Going along with the Hopi tale, she adds that she was, quote, divorced to the Japanese businessman before taking up amateur archaeology, perhaps suggesting a tongue-in-cheek slight to her husband in the Yarn article. Apparently, she also selected Carolus Eulenhurst's first guitar for her in the shop. Carolyn Pryor, two years ago, really turns things upside out, claiming that Chio was her stepmother, and, quote, it was recently revealed through her marriage certificate to Frederick Ishii that her real name was Frederica Bick. She adopted the name Chioko and tried to pass herself off as Polynesian. In the 50s, she suddenly became Hopi. Your guess is as good as mine. Furthermore, the drummer on the record, Bob Ross, pops up seven years ago, decrying not being paid, and the now-dead cult surf record producer of her music, Kim Fowley, asks the same question. It looked as though things would all be cleared up when one person declared that they had found Chio in an assisted living centre in Cottonwood, Arizona in her 90s. However, they infuriatingly don't respond to any of the requests to solve the puzzle, and then there is one last comment informing everyone that she passed away on the 23rd of May 2020. While we may never decipher whether she was the Hopi Chisamana or Nebraskan Federica, she was certainly the ferocious leader of Chio and the Crescents. This is the visceral diner surf of maple syrup. <laughs>
While Chio cut a rare figure as a female lead guitarist, Dorothy Ashby battled through several adversities, resulting in the complete reinvention of her instrument. Growing up in Detroit to a jazz guitarist father, she went on to study music at university in Detroit, experimenting with several instruments, finding an affinity with the harp, on which she developed a jazz and bebop-infused style. As a black American woman trying to break a classical instrument into the jazz scene, Ashby initially tried to win people over with three concerts, performing at weddings and dances. She said, The audiences I was trying to reach were not interested in the harp, period, classical or otherwise, and they were certainly not interested in seeing a black woman playing the harp. And only 30 years before she started to learn the instrument was the first recording made of a black female American musician, the singer Mammy Smith in 1920, an occasion in which the head of the record company, Oka, was sent death threats by southern and northern pressure groups, and the backing band consisted entirely of white musicians who stepped in for her own jazz hounds group. And of course, a plethora of black female vocalists emerged in the next 30 years, but not many instrumentalists. And it was in this inhospitable atmosphere that Dorothy Ashby went on to record 11 major albums in her own name, from the jazz harpist and hip-hop in the late 1950s, where she remodelled jazz standards in her own style, to her very expansive works in the late 60s, which incorporated African and Asian styles, even learning the Japanese koto on her Rubiat album. This is one of her first self-written compositions from 1962, exhibiting her visceral reimagining of the harp's voice, simply titled Booze. Thank you. 
Most of our outsiders have identified something different within themselves that cast them adrift. However, many outsiders find that it is society and authority that alienates them. The life of Ray Bourbon traces the outer edges of fiction, trimmed with diamante-studded brocade. Born either Hal Waldel or Ramon Ijares, a minor discretion, in either 1902 or 1892, depending on the situation, he claimed to have entered the entertainment industry as a stunt double for the actresses of the silent era, and supported the likes of Rudolf Valentino in his early films. His theatrical inclinations led him to vaudeville entertainment, deciding that he was in fact, quote, the last of the Habsburg bourbons, teaming up with his friend Mr. Scotch in the pansy shows of the 1930s, even modelling women's dresses for a department store in Bakersfield, California. Such gender transgression was, of course, considered quite risque and indeed dangerous in the increasingly heteronormative America of the early 20th century. His performer status granted him a degree of immunity, but attracted colourfully mixed reviews. A professional vulgarian not to be confused with glamour drag. The Los Angeles Times were in particular scathing, labelling him as obnoxious, beyond the oh-so-blue horizon for most showgoers. Emphasis on smut, another article exclaims. At his height in the 1940s, however, he sold out Carnegie Hall with his Don't Call Me Madam show, and also toured with Mae West. Following the proliferation of these critical columns, he opted for reinvention. Following the public interest generated around Danish soldier Christine Jorgensen's sex reassignment surgery, Ray saw an opportunity to generate a stir. Working together with a publicist ally to run a story on Bourbon, changing his name from R-A-Y to R-A-E, claiming to have flown to Denmark for an operation. As revealed later by an FBI interrogation of Bourbon, one of many, he was in fact having an operation to treat cancer during this time. The news coverage ran that Bourbon was the first person in North America to have the operation, and he capitalised and had a lot of fun with shows like She Lost It in Juarez? or his LP Let Me Tell You About My Operation. Unfortunately, the new morality of the 1950s made things difficult for Ray, who was arrested more frequently for impersonation, appearing very exuberant in court photographs prior to a trial, in which he successfully contended that the only impersonation Ray was making was of herself, brandishing a certificate from a mysterious Dr. Emmerich Shishkelly. But Ray Bourbon's final chapter is perhaps the most unbelievable. Convicted as an accomplice in murder, after hiring hitmen to beat up a kennel owner in Texas, to whom Ray had entrusted 70 pet dogs, which Bourbon believed he had killed, after missing a couple of payments for their upkeep. The dogs were probably sent to an animal shelter, and the hired assailants shot 
the kennel keeper, in the chest, leading to his death and Bourbon's life imprisonment in Texas. Ray's Let Me Tell You About My Operation, LP, was released on his under-the-counter records, sold strictly at performances or by mail order, no doubt in brown paper envelopes. A reviewer around this time described Ray's performances as ambiguous, a husky, well-cosmetic, elaborately coiffed, gowned and girdled dowager, complete with quivering, sun-tanned chins, a really awesome falsetto and speaking voice whose languorous timbre is perhaps only half an octave or so below the standard cocktail contralto. I'm not sure if he was reviewing the performance or raise credentials there. Have you got a minute? Good. Well, just sit down and relax and let me tell you about my operation. (laughs) Oh, this is the real dirt. Of course I had it done. To all of you that know me, you might have seen it coming. (laughs) So this will be no surprise. Everyone asks me, how does it feel? Well, it feels just fine to me. I can be the woman I've always wanted to be. For the change, I went south of the border. It took me just days to pack. I arrived there with excess baggage, but I had a lot less coming back. There's been a change in the gender, a big change in me. From R-A-Y, I've changed to R-A-E. So if anyone should ask you, just feel free to say, there's been a change in Ray. Ay vey, there's been a change in Ray. Now, I can do many things as a woman I could never do as I was. I've been dropped with a man of distinction ad, so I'm dickering with maiden farm bras. Well, I could become an actress, star of stage and screen, replace Ethel Barrymore and make the corn turn really green. (laughs) Now, all this fuss about Marilyn and her ever-shifting gears, that poor little girl has stopped only one bus. Madge, I've been lousing up traffic for years. I could even pose for a calendar that would make Miss Monroe weep. And you can bet that when I'm around, that sleeping prince wouldn't sleep. Or I could be an actress. Or a female spy. Can't you just see me as Martha Harry Bourbon, a bat too gay to die? (laughs) I could be a spy in Suez and find out what NASA's doing, keep those pilots happy, and keep those pipelines flowing. Of course, I could star in a show in Las Vegas. Dressed like Dietrich and Net and Allure. In her case, they knew what was caught in the net. <laughs> in my case, they'd never be quite sure. I could give Gina a run for her money. Oh, Lala Frigida girl, you are through. I'd love to swing on a trapeze. If Tony and Bert would swing too. Of course, I won't tell you all of my secrets, just enough to let you find a hint in. But I can do more in a gown by Dior than I can in a suit by Jim Clinton. And I may not say anything completely to convince those doubting Thomases whose suspicions are slightly shady. You may question some of the details, but (laughs) you cannot deny that I am a lady. Ray Bourbon in 1956 there. Some other titles from that album include Oh Doctor, I'm in the Family Way, and When I Said No to Joe. I'm sure you can more or less imagine how they all pan out. Now, 
If you thought Bourbon's trademark giggle was a little squeaky at the hinges, then how about this? That's about all I can play you with that one. The concerning introduction to Hazel Atkins's No More Hot Dogs. You'll have to seek out his Out to Hunch compilation to find out the full story at your displeasure. Hassel by name and Hassel by nature, born in West Virginia as one of ten children to a coal miner in 1937, growing up in a tar paper shack, not getting a pair of shoes until he reached the age of five. Confusion arose with a brother named Basil and a girlfriend called Hazel, so he would sometimes go by the Haze. His ramshackle upbringing was reflected in his ultra-lo-fi take on rockabilly music, described by writer Graham Reed as an explosion in a biscuit tin factory, recording albums on his own tape machine, stamping and percussing as a one-man band, saying, I can't have no band, I like to change the different chords, and can't expect nobody to follow me. Frequent lyrical topics among his 7,000-strong song catalogue include concerning obsessions with hot dogs, aliens, peanut butter, decapitation, heartbreak, and poultry, with song titles including Chicken Run, Chicken Hop, Chicken Flop, Chicken Wobble, Chicken on the Bone, and Chicken Walk, to name a few of those. He cited his main influences as Hank Williams, Little Richard, and Colonel Harlan Sanders, the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he indeed released an album titled Poultry in Motion. All of this combined with his deranged vocal delivery led him to be credited with coming up with the Psychobilly style. On the completion of each album, he would send a copy to the President of the United States. Richard Nixon actually replied, I am very pleased by your thoughtfulness in bringing these particular selections to my attention. There are tales of Adkins driving a car off a mountain in which a friend died, shootouts with jealous husbands, and a suspect relationship with a girl who was not yet 16. He did see his comeuppance, however, after being run over in his front yard by a teenager driving a quad bike. All's well that ends well, hmm? This is the first of his 7,000 compositions, I'm Happy. I'm happy!
Hassel Atkins, one of the few people who can make the simple phrase I am happy sound so sinister. His sister Irene claimed that the one-man band idea developed out of a misunderstanding as a child, saying he heard Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams on the radio and thought they were playing all those instruments themselves. Now, while Ray Bourbon was having fun at the expense of social norms, Sophie Tucker was taking social norms by the particulars, lifting men off their pedestals and putting them in the bedroom. Tucker was born into a Jewish family in present-day Ukraine, in a city called Venitsa, which meant Bride Price, acquiring the name after a Lithuanian duke gifted the lands to his nephew. And Tucker's first act of defiance was to head to America very quickly. Her first experience with performance came in her parents' Connecticut kosher restaurant, singing for tips, as she described, I would stand in the narrow space by the door and sing with all the drama I could put into it. At the end of the last chorus, between me and the onions, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. At the age of 17, she eloped with a beer cart driver named Louis Tuck, from whom she acquired her theatrical pseudonym. This match proved short-lived, and a few years later, Tucker moved to New York, defying her parents and the cookstove future which she feared to join up with the theatricals, which her parents decried as paskudniaks, or scoundrels. But she determinedly battled her way through New York restaurants, beer gardens, and vaudeville acts, and eventually found some recognition. Her culinary upbringing partly contributed to a luxurious physique, which attracted nasty barbs from some managers, some of which insisted she wear blackface as a distraction, something which she rejected. She instead incorporated songs such as I Don't Want to Get Thin, I'm the 3D mama with the big wide screen, and nobody loves a fat girl but oh how a fat girl can love, which proved to have an empowering effect. Billing herself later as the king-size Lollabrigida, a perfect 48. This wit ingratiated her to such an extent that she swiftly became a star of the Zigfield Follies, but was asked to leave after the other performers refused to share the spotlight with her. Her subsequent recording career persisted long after the pre-code era, even being removed from the stage during a rendition of her Angleworm Wiggle, 
With her lusty alpha female numbers and flamboyant couture and tailoring, Sophie Tucker was a forerunner of the later sexual revolutions, with both humour and a social drive which saw her mentor, Judy Garland, Mae West, and even gain the distinction of Paul McCartney quipping during the Beatles' first US tour that Sophie Tucker was the Beatles' favourite group. After seeing off a few husbands, Sophie Tucker contended that she was too much of an independent character and that, quote, no red-blooded man could stand to be a Mr. Tucker. Performing with a billboard that read Sophie Tucker's Red Hot Remedy, You've Got to Be Loved to Be Healthy, her signature song was Yiddish Mama, which became a Jewish anthem. When performing in Paris in 1932, anti-Semites drowned her out with booze, and it was a record which many European refugees would take with them when fleeing from the continent during World War II. On her deathbed, she asked the maid to bring her her wig. She then proceeded to go through one of her routines, performing till the very end. But... Here is Sophie Tucker with an important announcement from 1952. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a gal who never wanted to mix into politics. But my country needs me now, cause it's in one awful fix. You men have been running the USA for years, you've had full sway. I think it's a crime and just about time that we women had our way. You men have ignored the women. You've always been unfair. What we need is a woman now in the presidential chair. I ran for president four years ago, but Mr. Truman got in. Like William Jennings Bryan, I keep on trying, and this time I'm going to win. My presidential boom is going to be big and strong. And from now on, you'll hear this campaign song. Sophie Tucker for president, your candidate for 1952. On the day that I'm elected, all you gals have been neglected will be furnished with a lover tried and true. You just vote for Sophie Tucker for president, and I guarantee a better deal for you. You women who have husbands who just go to bed and snore, I'll pass a law, I'll make them be as amorous as of yore. Like Dr. Pepper, they'll be good at 10 and at 2 and at 4. You vote for Sophie Tucker for president, your candidate for 1952. And here is my platform. When I'm elected, I will see to it that we women get our rights. We'll not only have better days, but more enjoyable nights. We've been getting the old one-two from all of you politicians, when what we want is greater affection and better loving conditions. We now have government controls on all kinds of merchandise. When I get in, we're going to begin to put controls on all you guys. We'll put a control on every old wolf who's cheating on his spouse, and we'll freeze what he's got to cheat with before he leaves the house. And when it comes to the forgotten man, I'll go one better than Mr. Truman. I'll put every forgotten man with some forgotten woman. And if they need information on that popular indoor sport, Instead of the congressional record, I'll send them the Kinsey Report. For the betterment of our widows, you can't beat the Tucker plan. In every closet, a new mink coat and every boudoir man. You may get a widow's pension now, maybe all right. But what good is a pension on a cold and rainy night? 
What you women need is a guy like Clark Gable to call on you every night at nine with a big, long, kosher salami and a bottle of Manischewitz wine. He'll take care of your welfare in a manner you'll adore. And you can call up your psychiatrist and tell him you don't need him anymore. That's why I say we've got to have a woman in the White House. Women are doing everything today. We have women doctors. Hooray for the women doctors! We have women lawyers. Hooray for the women lawyers! We have women plumbers. Hooray for the women plumbers! In fact, there's very little difference between a man and a woman. Hooray for that little difference! Stop your heckling, please. Here is the most important issue. When it comes to the policy of foreign affairs, may I modestly say, I've had a couple of foreign affairs and I handled them okay. I'll take care of those Russian diplomats who do nothing but stall or disagree. Because when I get through with those guys, they'll have no strength to veto me. There's a big difference between war and peace, one fact you can't ignore. No man yet has ever said, I've just had a darn good war. So vote for Sophie Tucker for president. Well, you may have heard that the 34th President of the United States ended up being Dwight D. Eisenhower. But oh, how different things could have been. Sophie Tucker's Little Red Book would have been the Kinsey Report, as she mentioned there, which was a sort of cause celebre topical book titled Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Female, respectively. Or perhaps unrespectively, as Tucker may have prescribed. But while Sophie was displaced from Russia to a more hospitable locale, there were, of course, those whose identity as cultural outsiders was a source of melancholy and, indeed, creativity. Lilia Mendoza was such a figure, billed as La Alondra de la Frontera, or The Lark of the Border. She was one of the main exponents of Tejano music, a Texan-Mexican blend of Spanish and Czech-German musical styles. When Lilia was a child, the Mendoza family fled Mexico during the revolution to San Antonio, just over the border. Struggling to survive working out on the fields where they were made unwelcome, the family instead focused on their musical abilities. In the plazas of San Antonio, there would be frequent fiestas starring the Chili Queens, who set up tables conjuring hot pot aromas that filled the night air. Lydia learned folk songs from the back of bubblegum wrappers, a publishing company ploy to gain attention, and with her commanding voice and her robust and nuanced 12-string guitar playing, she soon earned spots on radio to support her family, and she was offered a recording contract with Bluebell, a major subsidiary of RCA Records, of course famously the record label of Elvis Presley. Her father, sceptical of the label's offer of royalties, instead insisted that they pay $20 for each record she recorded. A disastrous piece of negotiation that saw the family miss out on the hundreds of thousands in royalty payments. Performing exclusively in Spanish, there were still signs outside motels and restaurants declaring no dogs or Mexicans allowed, and hostility was omnipotent. Her family would in fact stay in Catholic churches frequently during her tours. As the alienation of the Tejanos diminished somewhat over the 20th century, 
she gained quite a recognition with new audiences, seeing her perform some songs which she had recorded 50 years previously. She lived till the age of 91 and actually got to meet her great-great-grandchild. In an interview in a documentary on Tejano music by Les Blanc, the songstress of the poor, as she was also known, shared, When I sing the song, I live that song. This is Sola, or Alone. Mendoza with her iconic 12-string guitar and Sola, which she recorded on August the 13th, 1935, in San Antonio, Texas. Perhaps one of the most notable examples of a single group of people borrowing things from other musical styles would have to be the Romani people, 
who are thought to have left northern India around 1500 years ago, travelling through Asia and Europe. A Persian epic poem titled The Shahanama describes the story of an Iranian king sending for lute-playing experts from India to entertain the poor people of his country. However, after supplying the players with the gift of oxen and wheat to sustain themselves, they returned to the king a year later with hollow cheeks, having instead eaten the oxen, angering him to such an extent that he ordered them to pack their bags and to wander the world on the back of their donkeys. Well, the Romani people certainly did journey, resulting in complex cultural synthesis from Babylon to Istanbul to Budapest with perhaps the best-known descendant being the jazz manouche guitarist Django Reinhardt, Django being Romani for I Awake, who famously lost the use of many of his fingers during a wagon fire. He of course merged American jazz with the Romani style he inherited from his family, and sometimes it is difficult to distinguish the Romani from the local cultures which they merged with. The Romani arrived in the Balkans around 900 years ago, and their influence is palpable in the traditional Sayes music of the region, its name actually deriving from a Persian stringed instrument, with drones and vocal layering reminiscent of Romani ceremonial music, merging with tales of mountain goat bandits and betrothal. There was a lively scene around Leskovic, a town on the border with Greece in the 1920s, with the Romani-descended Hafiz Leskovicu, who cut a striking figure in turn-of-the-century small-town Albania with cropped hair, men's clothing, and a free-octave vocal range. She was very resistant to being recorded, apparently fearing that the microphone would steal her voice, and indeed it seems she never quite recovered from the strange experience of giving her voice to a German record company. Here she is performing The Haunting, May Victory Be Their Mother, or something like that, in the 1920s with her brother Salim on the clarinet. Thank you. 
an example of Albanian says music with a Romani influence from Hafiz and Selim Leskovicu in the 1920s. While Lilia Mendoza and her family were ostracized in a country they fled to as refugees, there were those who were exiled from within their own country. The post-war liberal cultural bloom in the West inspired many imitators across the globe, for some of whom leading to conflicts with their local authorities. One of the most high-profile cases of this kind occurred in Korea. Shin Jung-hyun was born into a turbulent Seoul in 1938 during the Japanese occupation, and after hearing pop music on the American Forces Korea network making a radio himself so that he could glimpse the new sounds through the wall of static, he slaved in a pharmaceutical factory to save up for his first harmony guitar. He played his first shows at the American bases, playing standards under the name of Jackie Shin. As with Mendoza, this proved to be a more reliable source of income than the factories, and after being goaded by the GIs to play more solos, the following week he added a few to his repertoire to immediate acclaim, earning him a double-fold increase in pay from the bandleader. He went on to have a career characterized by mimicry of the American trends through a Korean folk lens. Late 50s guitar instrumentals through to Beatlesque pop groups and psychedelic soul, the Dwayne Eddy, Phil Spector and Jimi Hendrix of South Korea combined. His popularization of countercultural ideas attracted the attention of the authoritarian leader Park Chung-kee, whose committee approached Shin to compose a song in his honor. He instead composed a 10-minute ballad titled Beautiful Rivers and Mountains, which although may sound as inoffensive as possible, was taken by the leader as an act of unpatriotic insubordination, rejecting a vision of modern Korea defined by its leader. It's for the powers that be found an opportunity to imprison Shin after he supplied some marijuana to one of the president's son's friends. Although a legal substance at that time, it sounds as though he was playing with fire. His long hair was publicly cut short, his instruments confiscated, and years of imprisonment and confinement in psychiatric institutions followed, not released from vetting until the assassination of Chung-hee in 1979, which Shin himself described as an act of divine intervention. He is now considered to be the godfather of Korean rock music and achieved something of a lifelong ambition by performing his last concert to date in the USA at the Hollywood Bowl. Here's a real multi-milkshake blend of Korean Americana now, an early guitar instrumental titled Moon Watching.
sound of Shin Jong-hyun's guitar in 1958 recorded at a US military base using one microphone. While I have been very flexible in my delineation of outsiderdom, there is a writer, Erwin Chuzid, who attempted to offer a definition of outsider music in the same tradition of outsider art or art brew, describing outsider musicians as, quote, unintentional renegades who lack an overt self-consciousness about their art. They boldly break the rules because they don't know there are rules. One of the most entertaining sections from his book Songs in the Key of Z tells the real-life version of the producer's story of the Cherry Sisters, who in the 1890s toured their vaudeville show, the appropriately titled Something Good, Something Sad, around the US. They were so notoriously bad that they frequently sold out with curious audiences, who usually ended up barraging the stage with vegetables, cigarettes, and on one occasion a fire extinguisher was set off into one of their faces, leading to a mesh fence having to be implemented at future shows. Their upstanding moral prudishness, with all five sisters dressed militantly in enveloping black gowns, reached aggressive heights, with long essays, didactic chants, and even a tableau featuring one of the sisters crucified a la Christ. A desperate venue owner in New York, called Willie Hammerstein, booked them out, saying, I've been putting on the best talent, and it hasn't gone over. I'm going to try the worst. When in New York, they refused all social invitations on moral grounds, and declared that they would not be going to Coney Island, or anywhere where women wore bathing suits. Unfortunately for them, they proved to be very influential to their detriment. They demanded a retraction by a reviewer who wrote that their knowledge of the stage is worse than none at all, which escalated to become a landmark case in ensuring the right to fair comment. The court ruling, quote, If one makes himself ridiculous in his public performances, he may be ridiculed by those whose duty or right it is to inform the public regarding the character of their performance. The sisters later opened a bakery together, specialising in cherry pie, naturally, and one of the sisters, Effie Cherry, ran for mayor in Cedar Rapids on two occasions, billing herself on the poster as Clean City Mayor losing out on both occasions. And unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, there were no recordings made of the Cherry Sisters, but I do have somebody who I think induces similar emotions with an ode to one of the potential projectiles thrown at the Cherry siblings. <laughs> Six days in a week I go hungry Cause I can't get my favorite dish I never can wait till it's Friday Cause Friday is my day for fish Fish, fish, fish Friday is my day for fish Now some folks want some good health or money But I have got only one wish If you want to make me feel happy 
I'd be grateful for a plateful of fish, 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 fish. I'd be grateful for a plateful of fish. Now you can give me squad or cod, peak or or pike. I don't care what kind it is, cause fish is what I like. Now some folks might say that it's awful, but I say it's simply delish. I'm just like a seal in a circus. You may think I'm lazy or deaf as a daisy, but I'm simply crazy for fish, 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 fish. I'm simply crazy for fish. Yes, before Laurie Anderson, there was Leona Anderson and her single Fish, accompanied by Atena Tuba and Calliope. It may surprise you to learn that Leona produced just one LP called Music to Suffer By in 1957. She contended that opera singers, quote, can never let their voices go properly, something that Leona strived to demonstrate. Her notoriety as the world's most horrible singer earned her a role in The Tingler, William Castle's House on the Haunted Hill, in which she played Mrs. Slides alongside Vincent Price. Another entrant from Erwin Chusett's Songs in the Key of Z is also said to have given people the shivers. A modern jazz classical composer called Robert Grettinger a cadaverous recluse whose uncompromising City of Glass album, which he made with the jazz arranger Stan Kenton in 1947, led to quite a backlash. He had an unconventional mode of writing his music on graph paper in which the horizontal axis represented time and the vertical pitch, inserting colour-coded blocks for each instrument, for example blue for saxophone and red for trumpet. City of Glass was seen by many as incomprehensible. Grattinger himself explained his piece in the sleeve notes as follows. My music describes a city in which the buildings are structures of energy, structures that are in constant motion, are transparent, so that the motion of one can be seen through the motion of another, and many others through those. A city of moving glass-like structures. Apparently, even his biggest champion, Stan Kenton, had doubts. I don't know whether his music is genius or a bunch of crap, apparently, he said. Born on Halloween in 1923, he was known to live exclusively on a diet of scrambled eggs, milk and vitamins. He seems to have produced an alienating effect on everyone he met. Art Pepper reflected, he looks sort of like a ghoul or vampire with these strange haunting eyes, and Pete Rugolo's wife Jane expressed, 
He was a very weird person. He had terrible colouring, sick. And the musicians he worked with rarely recalled him ever saying a word. And when he conducted the City of Glass in Chicago, onlookers commented that he was like a skeleton or zombie. And on finishing, turned to an audience who were in stunned silence. A moody type, he is known to have confided in a friend, I'm above the timberline where nothing grows. Alas, his vampiric lifestyle led to missing out on the impact his music had in later years, with his cacophonous jazz orchestra style especially being taken up in film music. This is his Thermopylae, which is named after a Greek battle. The occasion in which Grettinger and the audience were locked in a stare following his performance, Stan Kenton jumped on the stage and started a vigorous applause, which apparently continued for five minutes non-stop. 
another musician who started with a jazz and classical background, but whose idiosyncrasy and charisma separated him from his contemporaries, was Raymond Scott, whose frenetic and capricious compositions, which would jump around from one section to another and back again, was epitomized by his composition Powerhouse, which was the blueprint for the music used in the Looney Tunes cartoons. His musicians both loved and loathed him for his controlling perfectionism, and while his music was lauded, he became increasingly interested in electronics, setting up a company called Manhattan Research Incorporated to promote his exploits in experimental electronic music, billing the company as more than a think factory, a dream center where the excitement of tomorrow is made available today. He initially found an outlet for his work by producing the backtrack for advertisements, working with Ford, IBM, Nescafe, and some of his own invention. I thought that headache had gone away. I guess buffered aspirin is not enough. Maybe it's time to try that painquilizer. Yes, of course I miss her. It was a night like this that she wore romance. I believe it was by Christian Dior. Raymond Scott became increasingly obsessed with an electronic synthesizer that he was constructing himself called the Electronium, a gesture towards AI where he wanted to bridge the gap between robot and human. Tamla Motown actually gave him a contract to develop the machine in hope that they could incorporate it into their recordings. However, Raymond Scott, ever the perfectionist, was taking much longer than they hoped, and Berry Gordy, the founder of Motown, lost interest after a couple of years. Raymond Scott claimed to have spent 11 years and almost a million pounds developing his electronium. Unfortunately, he suffered ill health and drifted into obscurity, with his electronic creations laden with cobwebs in storage. Erwin Chusid, the aforementioned writer of Songs in the Key of Z, sought out Raymond Scott, releasing some of these experimental works to spark a renewed interest and he is now credited as creating some of the first machines capable of producing electronic tones in sequence automatically. This unconventional path away from the music mainstream did make it harder to find an audience for his creations, leading to some unusual outlets, including a triad of albums designed to hypnotise babies into the realm of sleep called Soothing Sounds for Baby, which it would seem appealed less to red-eyed parents and more to the likes of Brian Eno 20 years later. Thank you. 
Three Vignettes from Raymond Scott's Soothing Sounds for Babies albums. He also patented sirens, a sort of musical ashtray, and even an adult toy, which made different sounds depending on where it was placed. Perhaps more so than anyone I have profiled thus far, the figure of the outsider conjures that philosophical, strange, aloof figure, looking out onto the world from his or her window, with wry eyes, as per Albert Camus' Merceau, from his existential novel, The Outsider. In the late 19th century, a Jewish family, one of many fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe, had bought a ticket to the USA. Or so they thought. In fact, finding themselves dropped off in the slightly less salubrious locale of the Gorbals in Glasgow. Ivor Cutler, born to this family in 1923, perpetuated the myth that his entry into the world coincided with the roar of the crowd at Ibrox Park, Rangers' football ground, as a goal was scored, setting the tone for a surrealist life. The son of a jeweller, Cutler, gave up a job as a Rolls-Royce fitter to join up with the RAF, reacting to jibes in the local paper about Jewish participation. However, he proved a quite incapable navigator, giving more attention to the clouds than his cartographical instruments. He next became something of an unconventional schoolteacher, on his first day tearing up the Tor's whip into small pieces and passing it around the pupils, in protest to the corporal punishment of the day. He then invited them to simulate the murder of their siblings in drama, and so on. It was this teaching experience which unlocked his performative side, being spotted by a promoter while he hawked his songs around Tim Pan Alley. Following appearances on the BBC Home Service, he honed in his distinctive combination of ironically dour vocals. He was described by George Martin as sounding as though he was mourning the loss of a dear friend even in everyday conversation, and his droning harmonium, both of which combined to give a strangely exotic take on the Scottish bagpipe setup all combined with his dryly comical, surrealistic monologues on life in a Scotch sitting room, performed with a sunflower in his fez. He was also known to be a prominent member of the Noise Abatement Society, to circle dog excrement on the pavement with white chalk on passing, and that on entering his London abode, you would be presented with a wax ear nailed to the wall with a six-inch nail, above a table bearing a collection of ivory cutlery. And James, after having made his excuses, was finally forced to tell the truth. Who tore your trousers, James, in the key of A? I tore my trousers 
Who tore your trousers, James? I caught them on the horn of a bull Walking in the country when the moon was full Suddenly I felt very cool Who tore your trousers, James? I cut them with a knife Courting Mary Jane I'll not do that again For along came Harry Jack And hack, 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 hack Trouble and strife Trouble and strife I'd better go back to my wife Who tore you trousers? Ivor Cutler with Who Tore Your Trousers from the 1961 LP of the same name which depicts Cutler looking coquettish, laying on his side, with a fetching yellow mop fringing his brow. It is thought that his long droning intonations were a reference to Jewish cantor singers, with him playfully fusing the two cultures he inherited, all clad in Lautartans, of course. And while Cutler's family were diverted en route to the US, Malvina Reynolds made it, all the way from Russia to the West Coast, growing up in San Francisco, spinning yarns on the steps of the tenement apartments to entertain the other children. She felt that her songwriting later on was an extension of this same impulse. Despite gaining a PhD from Berkeley, her parents' socialist background saw her blacklisted, obtaining instead grueling jobs as a steel worker, in munitions assembly and tailoring. Her musical career didn't take off until she reached her 60s, most well known for writing What Have They Done to the Rain and Little Boxes, which apparently, when driving through the suburbs, she asked her husband to pull over so she could write the song after passing an estate of uniform white houses. Her music often looked at the plasticity of the modern age and environmental issues ahead of their time, with an affecting humour. Songs about DDT, an injurious food additive, restaurants where everything is sparkling pristine but the food is terrible, and titles such as I Don't Mind Failing and Thank God for the Grass, simple sentiments with a great deal of gravitas. And this song is especially in that vein. Eight years before its namesake, this is Malvina Reynolds and Let It Be. When you walk in the forest, let it be. There's a flower in the wood, let it be. There's a flower in the wood, and it's innocent and good. By the stone where it stands, let it be, let it be, let it be.
It's so lovely where it is, let it be. Though you want it for your own, if you take it from its place, it will not be what it was when you loved it where it stood in the wood. Let it be, let it be. It's so lovely where it is, let it be. It's a thoughtful child, innocent and wild, in the wood by the stone, let it be. Let her be, let her be. When you walk in the forest, let her be. You think that you love her, and you want to discover how she's made, so you take her apart and break her heart. Malvina Reynolds and Let It Be suggesting that the world might be in better shape if everyone acted more as its guest. For we consider Earth our home when, in truth, it's more like a hotel. Expensive, crowded, transient, with someone unseen expected to clear up all the mess. I am Oliver Turtle, and thank you for tolerating me on this very digressive but thorough odyssey into outsiderdom. On reflecting what it is that all these outsiders, as I have cast them, have in common, I came to an unsettling and surprising conclusion. They all have a mole above their left eyebrow. Well, I wondered if they may as well have, for I worried that I had been superficial in bracketing all these people who were a bit different in some way and had in doing so trivialised them as many of the figures faced persecution or mental illness, while others perhaps just seemed a bit eccentric or aloof, the marginalised and the self-marginalised. What all of these people did have in common was a belief which they expressed in defiance, and I hope that in presenting such a breadth, this feeling was amplified and relatable, offering some sense that the alienated are never as alone as they may fear. For we are all outsiders looking in on the world through the windows of our gaze. And we all have to check out of that hotel eventually.